0: good morning I encourage you to go ahead and take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Mark mark chapter 1 We'll be beginning our, our reading in just a moment so you're taking the time to to turn in God's word to this passage I would like to extend the welcome that has already been been mentioned it is always a, a pleasure to be here with you to to come together to worship God it's always a pleasure for our visitors to uh, um, to have you with us and hope you know that you are our honored guest with us. Um, and I, I wanted to spend some time as we gathered together this morning talking about a, a topic that I believe is an important topic, a topic that I believe we sometimes struggle with. Um, I alluded to this topic last week as we as we talked during our singing about the the call to excellency that we have, uh, that, that God... Uh, desires for us, and Jesus has died so that we have the opportunity to be righteous, but to live a righteous life is sometimes difficult, and there are uh, temptations along the way that, that draw us away from that hope that we can have of an eternity with God in heaven, that desire to be found right in His eyes, and that's one of the more glorious things that I see whenever we stop and we we think about the life that Jesus lived, and the the example that He has left for us, I find a blessing, a blessing of Jesus as a Savior in His ability to comfort and to aid those who are tempted. Because He too was tempted, as Hebrews chapter 2 tells us. And He is sympathetic, and He can provide mercy, and He can provide grace for us in a time of need. And one of His greatest periods of temptation was found at the beginning of His public ministry. And Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we read of Jesus being baptized by John. And the the voice came down from heaven. The spirit descended upon him like a dove. And he said, uh, the voice said, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Is it this time Christ is being obedient to the will of God? He is following in the path that God would desire him to follow in. He is... Placing the will of God above his own will, something that we would see him do time and time again in scriptures. And so God sends us a message of affirmation and a message of confirmation. And, and immediately following that, and just prior to his beginning his public ministry, we see the temptation of Jesus. And studying the temptation of Jesus is important because what it does is it helps us see some ways in which we can overcome temptation as well. It's fruitful because we can see that Jesus understands our temptations because he has been involved in temptation. And it also reveals how we can be more successful when we seek to overcome them. So with that in mind, we're going to use Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 13, which is is not the most descriptive of the three accounts that talk about this. We're going to use this as our springboard. It says, Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now if you want to try and mark Mark chapter 1, And also Matthew 4 and Luke 4, because those are the two parallel accounts of that. We're going to be flipping back and forth between the three of these. But what I want us to see as we review the temptation of Jesus, is we must start by understanding the setting of the temptation. The Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, Mark chapter 1 and verse 12. Now we might ask ourselves, why Why on earth was, was God tempting Jesus? Well, we know that's not the case. James tells us that in the book of James, that, that God does not tempt anyone. And it doesn't say here that the Spirit tempted Jesus, but it drove Him into the wilderness. That is to say, it was in keeping with God's will that Jesus experienced these temptations. So that, as we already mentioned out of Hebrews, that He would be able to be sympathetic. Now, I'm not saying that without that, Christ could not. I, as, as the Creator of the universe, as, as God, uh, or a part of the, God, uh, of the Godhead, I... I believe that he had every ability to experience anything that he wanted to experience but he was able to come to this earth and say I have I have been tempted just as you are tempted. The spirit drove him it was God's will that he would go into the wilderness and experience this challenge. This is again the same spirit that had just uh, ascended upon him in, in the in the in baptism that had told him uh, through the voice he had heard that God was pleased in his actions now the wilderness of Judea that he was driven into it was likely a very desolate place and he's there for 40 days and it says that he fasts for 40 days and then there have been times that men have tried to, to denounce the, the word of God saying well no one no one could do that no one could go 40 days without food or water but Jesus is not the first one to have done this He fasted like Moses did in Exodus chapter 34. If we want to flip over there for a moment, Exodus 34 and verse 28. We can read about Moses as he was on the mountain. It says he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights and he neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. They're literally in in place of, of physical food. Was this, this bread of life, the word of God, as Moses was receiving that and writing it down. Likewise, Elijah, <clears throat> in uh, First Kings chapter 19, First Kings chapter 19 and verse 8. As he was heading to a mountain, it said he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. This is not the first time that this has happened and science has even proven, not proven but but shown to be in agreement with the word of God that man can certainly last for this these lengthy periods of time without food and without water. And Jesus now we see in the setting is in the tempta- he is in the wilderness, he is away from from the creature comforts that that existed in that day and I think sometimes we we fail to realize the, the life that they had in that, in that first century was not as barbaric as we sometimes make it out to be. There's a stark difference between being in Jerusalem and being in the wilderness of Judea. So Jesus is away. He is alone at this time. He is without food. And this is where Satan decides that he will tempt him. And I want you to remember this setting because this setting is going to be uh, reflecting of another setting in which Satan tempted. Because you see here, Jesus away, alone, hungry, not having all of his needs met, and Satan bringing temptations upon him. Luke chapter 4, verse 2 says that during this time, he was tempted. Mark 1:13 says he was tempted by Satan. Literally, that word there means the adversary. Matthew and Luke both use a different word, they use the term devil, which means accuser or slanderer, but he was taken into this, this time, he was sent off into, this, to be, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The identity and the person of Satan have, have for quite a while afforded men the, the opportunity to experience much conjecture and argument over, over what Satan is. And in our our present generation, it is oftentimes widespread that Satan is merely a, a presence or personification of evil. He is a status of influence, but it is plainly declared in the Holy Scripture that Satan is actually a person, a being of higher order in creation than man, but fallen from his estate, as Jude talks about. Satan is held oftentimes seemingly in awe by the angels and, and appears to have been casted out of his domain in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 6. Matthew to speaks of him in chapter 13. In Matthew 13, he calls him, uh, he is the one who sows the tares in the kingdom. And he is the one that snatches the words out of the heart of men in Matthew 13, 9. Satan is restricted, however. Even though he seems to be so powerful, he is restricted and he is limited. He does not share control of the universe with God. And it's an important thing to see in this temptation of Jesus, that Satan is not like God. Sometimes we use these these terms to describe God, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. We we use these words to talk about how God is all-knowing and all-powerful and and can be everywhere. And these terms do not describe Satan. Satan. Satan is not on a level with God. He is an adversary, but he is an adversary that can certainly be defeated. And Jesus knew this going in to his temptation. And so we see that towards the end of these 40 days, the temptation comes to a climax. And in that climax, Satan appeals to several things to try and to tempt him. Turn over to Matthew chapter 4. We'll read these um, we'll go through these together. The first thing he appeals to in Matthew chapter 4 is he appeals to the lust of the flesh. Matthew 4 verses 3 through 4 says, Now when the tempter, that is Satan, came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It, sh- uh, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So Satan Satan continues, and he appeals to the vain pride of life, saying, Then the devil took him up to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Here, quoting from Psalm chapter 91 using God's word. And Jesus says to him again, it is written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And then finally, we see him tempt him with the lust of the eyes. He says uh, in in chapter eight, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Over and over again, Satan tries to tempt Jesus uh, with with these different temptations, and each time Jesus replies, It is written. Now Mark alone, uh, excuse me, uh, Mark does not record he does not record this climax of Satan's temptation. But as Matthew and, and, and Luke both briefly summarize it, we see these, the, these attempts for, by Satan to, to cause Jesus to sin. But with the aid of Scripture, Jesus is victorious over Satan. And it brings us to the end of his temptation where we see that the angels ministered to him. The angels ministered and it's not told us exactly what that is. Uh, I I remember as a child, I always pictured this as the angels descending with a table and a tablecloth and food and and just a feast. And I, I imagine maybe there was some form of that. Maybe there was physical nourishment that they provided. But I also feel now that there was also a great deal of spiritual nourishment that was provided in coming through these temptations. But whatever happened, it is not recorded to us, but it says that they did minister unto Him. They served Him. And I want to notice that this would not be the last time for many things. Number one, this would not be the last time that Jesus would be tempted. In Luke chapter 4, in verse 13, Shortly after his, his uh, time in the wilderness, it says the devil departed every temptation. Uh, after, excuse me, now when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. At this time, he didn't, he didn't just give up and throw in the towel. He slunk uh, back into the shadows. He is described in the scriptures over and over again as a, as a serpent or as the dragon, or as the lion. And having seen his prey and attacked and been unsuccessful, he draws back until another opportune time when he might try and tempt Jesus again. Matthew chapter 16, we see one of those times happening. In Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23, Jesus being tempted by an unlikely source. Verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must go to Jerusalem, and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. Jesus pulls his disciples aside. He starts showing them these are things that must happen to to prepare them so that they will not be totally distraught, try to, to help them to understand. And during this, Peter pulls him aside, and he begins to rebuke him in verse 22, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. That this should not happen to you. Pulls Jesus aside. This can't happen. This isn't going to happen. We see Peter, is the, the obvious very good friend of Jesus. He, he loves the Lord. And he has a great zeal to, to be a, a servant to him. And he pulls him aside and said, this can't happen. And Jesus responds to him. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now imagine these words certainly pricked the heart of Peter. To hear, say, uh, to hear Jesus say these things of him, but also have a, an, an image in my mind of, of Jesus viewing through Peter, Satan, again, striving to tempt him. Satan working in Peter to try and pull him away from the will of God, to pull him away from the very things that God had sent him to this earth to, to do. Over and over again, Jesus would face the temptation to quit, to turn away, to give up. And over and over again, he would overcome. And we would see again that this would not also be the last time that he would be ministered unto by angels. Over in Luke, this time in chapter 22, after facing another temptation. Luke 22 and verse 43 this is directly after the prayer in the garden when he said, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. The same attitude that he had at the beginning of Mark when he was baptized, when the, when the Spirit of God descended like a dove, when the voice said, "This is my, you are my son am I am I'm well pleased, he was following in God's will. And even now, at the end of his life, as he faces the the coming betrayal and crucifixion, he is still saying, it is not my will, it is your will that must be done. What an opportunity for temptation to take a hold, for Satan to come in and say, look what you're facing, that is too great, it is too much, Jesus. But he still overcomes, and in verse 43, an angel appeared to him from heaven Strengthening him. After tribulation. Came consolation. And with 40 days of overcoming temptation behind him in the wilderness. Jesus is now prepared to enter into public ministry. I think that's important for us to consider sometimes. of What he went through just to be able. One just to be able to come to earth. Just to, to, to come and to, to be Man. That's not something, first of all, to strive for in the case of Jesus who was equal with God and is equal with God, but also to be able to minister unto man. He went through this period of time of temptation in the wilderness. What applications might we then draw when we consider our own temptations and how that we overcome them? How might we apply the temptation of Jesus to us? the first thing that we must notice is that we have the very same adversary. Jesus was tempted by the devil and so are we. Over in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9, Peter tells us, It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Note that since the beginning of time, Satan has tempted man. Thus he is known as the tempter. He, he, He was in the garden. When he tempted Adam and when he tempted Eve. And he was successful there. And I want us to draw our our minds back to that for a moment. Of the setting of that temptation. Man in the garden. With all of his physical needs met. Man in the garden with protection from anything. There was no death. Man in the garden with this close relation with God who walked amongst the garden with them. In this setting... Man, Adam, the first Adam, fell to temptation. Satan was successful in tempting him to sin. In the wilderness, away from the protection of the garden, away from the the physical needs that that a, a human has in this life, Away from the relationship of God that he had, he had stepped down from, being at the right hand of God, being equal with God to step down as a human man, Satan again attempts to tempt Adam, the true Adam. And in this very conflicting scenario, where you have one that it should have been optimal for man to say no, and one where it should have been optimal for man to say, I give in, Jesus overcomes. Satan is unsuccessful. The devil directs at this point, having failed to tempt Jesus, he directs his attention to those who would follow him. Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 12 and verse 17, says the dragon, this is speaking of, of, of the devil, then the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We must not treat him lightly. We must recognize him for who he is. He is described as the serpent. He is described as the beast, or, uh, or the dragon, the lion. He is called the tempter. He is called the devil. He is called an angel of light. He is a person. He is a being that is sole purpose to try and to turn the hearts of men away from God to destroy the true creation of God. So we must not treat him lightly. We must recognize that we are no longer in a walk in the garden, but we are strolling in a, me- in a conflict, in a conflict that is real, as Ephesians 6 tells us. And we need to prepare ourselves for that. Because just, because we, just like we have the same adversary, he uses very similar temptations on us. He attempted to, to, to tempt Jesus with the lust of the flesh. And I think a lot of times we think of the lust of the flesh, and, and I know I am, I am guilty of this, and I, I think it is probably common for us to very quickly turn to, to sins such as adultery or a fornication or homosexuality, and we say, those things right there, the lust of the flesh, those are bad. But I don't, I'm, not, I'm not tempted by that. I'm not tempted by those things, so, so I'm Okay. But the lust of the flesh can involve so many other things and and Satan loves to to use this to dangle that in front of, of Christians to try and turn their hearts and their minds away from God using immorality of all sorts of different manners, even coming up in, in, a, in a couple months we have we have Thanksgiving. What about gluttony that's that's a That's a temptation that that I face that <laughs> might show a little bit and that. Big turkey is brought out and we, we look at it. Boy, that looks good. I'm going to get some of that and then I'm going to come back for seconds and I'm going to come back for thirds and I'm going to come back for fourths. And that's gluttony. Gluttony is, is, is this living in excess beyond our, our, what we need, what, we, what, what our means are. Well, we allow Satan to tempt us with that? These are the same temptations he used on Jesus. What about the, the lust of the eyes? Materialism. Maybe, maybe that's where maybe that's where that, that turkey falls into for you. Maybe so that's lust of the eyes. I looked at it, boy, it sure looked good, and I just I just couldn't quit going back to it. What about covetousness? We looked at the the things around us. The things that we oh just I have to have that. And all my life is is fulfilled in that. And I understand that one too. That's a very hard one for me. When oftentimes the, the bank account is not black, it's red. And we look at that and say, oh, what are we gonna do? How are we going to solve this? Thing? Well, let's, let's, let's work a little more. And maybe we, we start off sacrificing some time of our spouses. We'll, do, we'll, we'll sacrifice that time we spend with our spouse. We'll put that aside for a little while. Because we, we have to, this is what's important. We have to raise that bank account back up. And we sacrifice some time of our, of our children's. Time that could have been spent with them making, making the bond that is there between a, a parent and a child stronger. Teaching them more about the gospel and about what God would desire them to be. Maybe we begin to sacrifice time with the saints. Wednesday evenings, I'm just not going to be able to make it because this is this is I, I need to work. I've got to be there for that. Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning, it just continues to snowball. Where where are we what are we lusting after whenever we, we look to these things of the world and we look to materialism and it begins to take a place over top of, of God and of Christ. Or about the pride of life. I think this one is one that is certainly hard for Christians. And certainly one that Satan loves to try and to exploit. The pride of life to look at those around us. And to have that temptation to be like that Pharisee. As he looked at the public and, and said, at least I'm not like that. I'm not a murderer. And, and, and look at what I give and look at what I do. And at least I'm not like, I'm not like those people out there who are, who are advocating for abortion. At least I'm not like those people out there that are are parading around with their sinful lifestyles of homosexuality. At least I'm, I'm, I'm not like those people, God. Satan loves to try and to take our righteousness and to flip that against us. To fill us with arrogance and to puff us up. We must overcome, however. 1 John chapter 2. We talked about this not too long ago in our our class. First John 2. If we are to be like God, if we are going to experience and have the love of the Father, if we are going to reflect his light to the world, then we must overcome when Satan tries to tempt us the same way that Jesus overcame. How is that? How do we do that? How do we remain steadfast so that we might receive a crown? How do we remain steadfast so that we might one day be transformed? Wednesday night we talked about that, to be transformed and put off the mortality and put on immortality. That great hope that we have one day in heaven, how do we overcome to reach that goal? By using the same tools that were given to Jesus and are given to those who follow Him today. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. I think Ephesians chapter 6 is an excellent passage to look at as we think about the temptation of Jesus. Because in Ephesians chapter 6 we see many of the, of the weaponry and the defenses that Jesus used to guard himself against the devil. Because in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we mentioned before that this is a battle. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. We are battling Satan in this life. And he is constantly striving to turn us away from God. And how do we overcome? One thing we do is Ephesians 6, verse 17. We learn how to wield the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Jesus applied the word of God. And so can we. When Satan comes with his attacks, we have a weapon, a weapon that is forever sharp. We don't have to to sit down and and sharpen it and polish it and make it look good. It it is is one of these as seen on TV. It it will never go dull. But we do have to learn how to wield it. We need to learn how to use it. Because so oftentimes we go around slinging it around at people that are not the enemy. Satan is the enemy. In fact, I know I've said it before, that, that weapon is most best applied when we stick it here first. When we use the word of God in our own hearts. Notice how Jesus, whenever even, even when Satan used the word of God, he went right back to it each and every time. That was his default, to go straight to the word of God to respond to him. It is because it was what he had been trained and, and, and taught to do. At the age of 12, he's, he's st- you remember he stands there before men who, who should have been very, very wise and understanding, and they were baffled, they were amazed at the, learn, or at, at the wisdom of Jesus and the way he applied the scriptures and taught the scriptures. We have those same tools. That needs to be our, our go-to. So many times in the world today, our go-to is not the Word of God. It is, but this is the way I feel, and this is what I think. When Satan puts those temptations in front of us, quickly we go to, well, what, what, what's going to be best for me? What's, what's going to be the, the thing that I think is the smartest thing to do? Or what's going to be the best thing that, that I think that the, the people around me, or, or the, the society as a whole, or, or some religious leader, or my parents, or what do they think? Jesus, every time, went straight back to God's Word. But He also demonstrated an immense deal of faith. Faith in the plan of God. And He had victory through the suffering. And we have a similar shield of faith. In verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 6, it says, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. They used to take these, these great wooden shields that they would use to protect themselves from, from sword strikes and from spears and, and hammers and all sorts of weaponry. And they would cover them in animal fur and, and, and anything that would absorb water. And then they would soak that so that when arrows were shot at them and these arrows are flaming, they, they would hit that shield and they would go out. They would be extinguished. They didn't have to be afraid. When, when the army up on the hill, when they, when they see those bows, those archers, and the flaming arrows are flying at them, they know they have a weapon. They have a tool for that. And Jesus knew he had a tool. A tool for whenever Satan put these things in front of him to try and to distract him, that he could have faith in the will of God. The will that had led him into the, into the wilderness. The will that had led him to, to come as a man the will that led him to the cross. He can have faith in that plan that God had. And then undoubtedly, undoubtedly during these 40 days, Jesus prayed. And I know this because Matthew chapter 26. Hold your place here. We'll come right back to Ephesians for just a moment. But in Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26 verse 41 Not long before Jesus is is betrayed and arrested, as He talks to the the disciples and as He's preparing them for what is, is to come, He tells them in verse 41, Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus taught them the use of prayer in overcoming temptation. And Ephesians 6, verse 18 teaches that as well, saying, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all this, the saints. The Word of God, the faith of the Christian, and the power of prayer. Against these, Satan stands no chance. And he realizes that. That's why he's shrunk back. That's why he didn't continue to tempt Jesus, because he knew he stood no chance against the tools in which Jesus had employed to defeat him. And so he shrunk back into a time when he would have a more opportune moment. But we also need to see that we have a very similar blessing as well. Just as Jesus was administered to by the angels, God did not leave Christ to die in the wilderness. He was fed of angels. Satan's proposal then to change these stones into bread, not only was that a sin, it was unnecessary. There's no reason to change these stones in the bread because my God will take care of me. And so Christ, who is introduced in the very first verse of the New Testament, the very first verse of the New Testament describes him as the son of Abraham. He discovered in times of dire need the same truth that Abraham uttered on that Mount of Moriah when he said, Yehovah Ure, the Lord will provide. Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, I imagine, had to have been floating through the back of Christ's mind. As he looked at those stones, as he is not eaten in 40 days, as he looked at the kingdoms, and this is what I have come to create, and Satan says, I will give it to you. The Lord will provide. I don't have to do it your way. I don't have to do it my way. The Lord will provide. I will do it his way. And because of this, Jesus received wonderful blessings. And when he ultimately overcame, and when he ascended to heaven, and he had promised similar blessings for us. In Revelation chapter 2, in verse 10, he said, he who overcomes will be given a crown of life. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, he says, he who overcomes will be given white garments. This is the idea of purity. Be given white garments and a name found in the book of life, and a name confessed before God and before his angels. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, he said, He who overcomes will be granted to sit with me on my throne. There are a lot of things that we can learn from the temptation of Jesus. Very quickly to wrap this up, we learn that material food, material things cannot satisfy by themselves. We must seek spiritual food from God's word. We learn that we can trust in the Lord and we should not foolishly test Him. We should not foolishly put Him to prove Himself and we should not take things into our own hands and try to solve our problems on our own. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16 also backs this next one up. Scripture can be abused. 2 Peter 3 tells us that there are those who will twist and distort the Scriptures to their own destruction. And then probably most, most vividly seen, at least by me, in the temptation of Jesus, is that the way to glory and the way to righteousness is not quick and it is not easy. It is a straight and narrow path. But that doesn't mean that it's going to be fast. And that doesn't mean it's going to be simple. Acts chapter 14 verse 22 tells us that with much tribulation we enter into the kingdom. The temptation of Jesus serves as a model to teach us true service to God. And perhaps the greatest lesson that we learn in this is the lesson that we began with. That through all this, we see Christ as our Savior who in all things has been made like us. Hebrews 2, verse 17, He is merciful and faithful to us as our high priest. He has suffered and He has been tempted and He can aid us in our times of need. In Hebrews 4, verses 15 through 16, he is sympathetic. He has seen and he has experienced the life that we live, and he can provide mercy, and he can provide grace for us in our time of need. So, this morning, I ask a a rhetorical question. Are you burdened with temptation? I know that you are, because I am. We all are. We are burdened with the temptation that comes with living in a fallen world. And we constantly face the attempts of of Satan to turn our hearts away from Jesus. We must look to him. Look to him as our example of learning how to overcome temptation in our life. And look to him as our high priest. Whenever we approach God in prayer, realizing that we're approaching God in prayer through the Christ that experienced these things... And that died so that he might be able to stand in intercession for us, to receive mercy and grace through him. And as in all things, look to Christ as the author and the finisher. Of our salvation, Hebrews twelve two through 3 says, Look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross. I don't think endured the cross and joy belong in the same sentence most of the time. But for the joy of Christ, He came to this earth and He died on the cross. And for the joy of Christ, He despised the shame. Again, joy and despise don't seem to go in the same sentence. But it was His joy to come to earth. And to endure the cross. Come to earth and despise the shame. Why? Because it was his joy to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. A high priest who has become like us. Tempted and tried and victorious. Let's look to him to find grace. Remember that grace is something that teaches us to submit to him in obedience. That teaches us to seek his righteousness. And I want to suggest that that is absolutely impossible for us if we are lost in our sins. Even if those sins are are, are very small, if we have just succumbed to temptation in small ways, those sins are still large enough to separate us from God. But thanks to the victory of Christ over Satan, thanks to the victory of Christ over death, He was crucified, He was buried, and He was resurrected so that we might have a hope, so that we might be able to find forgiveness for our sins. This morning, this morning, you can find forgiveness for your sins. You can find it through being born again in baptism, through becoming like Him in death, having the old man put off and the sins of that old man left there at the foot of the cross. The new man can rise up out of that watery grave completely clean, clothed in righteousness, clothed in Christ. But we're told to put to death that old person. And oftentimes we don't leave them put to death. We like to go back and we like to dig up graves. It's that song, Digging Up Bones. We like to go back and we like to look for those things. Satan loves to tempt us to look. Do you remember how great that was? Constantly remind yourself that it wasn't that great. The greatness of the hope that we have in Christ is far greater. And so if we have gone back and we have dug up those old temptations or if we have stumbled into new ones, we must remember that Jesus, He gives us hope. We may stumble. We don't have to fall. We can get back up. We can continue to climb that hill towards the mountain of God, towards Zion, towards our place with Him in eternity because He is our high priest and He is our Savior, and He is our Lord, and He intercedes for us. Are we seeking His forgiveness? If there's any way that we can help you with that this morning, I encourage you, please, let it be known right now as we stand and as we sing.